upon marking him number 514, may we again express to each of ourselves the character of God's blessings to us for the wonderful opportunity and the privilege that's ours to be able to assemble on an occasion like this one, the appreciation of the holiday season and the thanksgiving that no doubt filled our heart helps perhaps prompt us even forward to contemplate more beautifully and majestically the great blessings in a spiritual way that God has showered upon us, that for which we have already expressed thanksgiving and prayer just a few moments ago, the beautiful wonder of the shed blood of Christ and all that that makes possible for you and me to live favorably in the very sight of our Heavenly Father. This evening, as you might have noted by the announcement or at least the writing in the bulletin, the title of the lesson relates to Barnabas the Encourager. An interesting descriptive, and I hope that's prompted each of us to think a bit more interestingly about what may be unfolded in the book of Acts. And it is mostly to that book that we'll turn our attention tonight. So if you happen to have your Bible, and I, I hope that you do, that you'll follow along as we look at a few of the chapters in the book of Acts. But perhaps by way of introduction, a few thoughts about that might well be in order as we begin to think about what we may learn a bit later about the person named Barnabas. Isn't it amazing the influence and the power that presents itself so often in examples? I'm sure each of us have been so greatly influenced by someone, perhaps a parent, maybe an uncle, maybe an aunt, maybe some other close neighbor, who took the special interest and the time to allow us watch them and learn from them how to do something. Maybe it was something to do inside the house. Maybe it was a chore on the farm. Maybe it was something related to the job that you and I now have, where we learn that task and that skill in part by the observation and the experience of someone else. If that has been a part of your life or mine, and I suspect to some degree, no doubt it has been, I think that helps us appreciate, at least in part, the examples in the Bible. Old and New Testament alike are filled with characters, real-life individuals, who not only lived on this earth and walked in the very footsteps that you and I may in, at least indirectly perceive, they were individuals who lived and breathed and worked, and they carried on lifestyles. However, the Bible has recorded them as timeless examples. Some of them were wonderful examples, like Moses, a man, the meekest man in all the earth, Numbers 12, verse 3 tells us. We learn from him the greatness of meekness and the power of submissiveness to God's law and his plan. Do we also not learn of Jeremiah and the tremendous example of boldness in the face of difficulty? A man thrown into the dungeon, not in fact more than once, because of his true devotion to God and his word. As we come to the New Testament, what about the man known as Saul, later known as Paul? An individual who turned his life completely around when he saw the Lord on that road to Damascus and thereafter gave his life firmly and devotedly as an open and testified servant to the God of heaven. Just as surely, though, as there were positive examples whom we should take the time to emulate and find out the good things about their life, there are also those that were negative examples, those whom we ought not follow because they chose to live their life in a way that was opposed to the will of God. And hence they acted foolishly, they acted unwisely, they acted in a way that hurt and harmed God's cause and perhaps even other individuals. 
Perhaps Jezebel comes quickly to mind in the Old Testament, who she herself influenced a whole generation to sin and to walk apart from the law of God, rejecting his will, his prophets like Elijah, as we read in 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19. But not only Jezebel. In the New Testament, what about Demas? Paul wrote of him in the very last chapter, the Apostle Paul wrote, as far as we know, in 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 11, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. There was a man who had great potential for the cause of God, a tremendous servant who could have influenced many to, in fact, devote their life to Jesus. And yet Paul said he loved this world more than he loved the Savior. How tragic and how sad. But of Diotrephes, is it not said in 3 John verse 9, here was one who loved to have the preeminence. He, you see, was a dictator of the church. Rather than bowing in submission to the headship of Jesus, he wanted all the glory for himself. And John even said that when I come, I'll set things in order in regard to Diotrephes. May you and I not be thus like Diotrephes today, appreciating the fact that there are elders who, in fact, are not to take the lead by taking the oversight in a way that is unwillingly, according to 1 Peter 5, verse 4, but who take that oversight as God would have them to take it. And they lead in a matter in direction with the Word of God, not despite it and not opposed to it. The thoughts then of these examples perhaps prompt us to ask about the example of a man named Barnabas. We encounter him on several occasions in the book of Acts, a man who seems to be such a wonderful character. Perhaps tonight, we, upon revisiting his life and the characteristics revealed to us about him, can be encouraged to be like Barnabas, the encourager. And without further ado, let's open to Acts, the fourth chapter, and look at the first mention of Barnabas in all the Bible. It certainly will not be the last, but this is the first occasion in which he himself is mentioned. In Acts 4, a significant amount of history is provided to us, and my desire over the next moment or two will only be to review and rehearse it so that we'll be better prepared to read verse 36 and 37 and to appreciate the thoroughness of what is delivered to us on that occasion. In the early days of the church, the church itself having begun by the testimony in the second chapter of Acts, in the fourth chapter the church was still in its infancy. However, it was growing by leaps and by bounds. As individuals came to the Jerusalem area to participate and observe the Pentecost festival, the Pentecost observance, remember, many of them were converted on that occasion to the Christianity to the gospel, to Jesus as Lord and Savior. However, they had come only to celebrate Pentecost and go back home. To that extent, they now were in a foreign place a good distance from home. Their food would soon run out. The necessities of life would soon no longer be theirs because they had expended it all. What were they to do? There was significant persecution due to the others who, being Jews, would not convert to Christ. They, however, would persecute greatly these individuals who formerly had been Jews but now had converted to Christ. In Acts 2, we read in verses 41 and following that there were about 3,000 on that Pentecost day that obeyed the gospel, were baptized, and thus became Christians. Two chapters later in verses 2 and 3 of Acts chapter 4, we learn on that occasion 
that the number had advanced now to around 5,000. What an interesting and beautiful thing to perceive the explosive growth of the church. But notice that growth comes in part with a good question. How was the church to take care of these members who now found themselves under great duress, great persecution, great difficulty? Notice as chapter 4 draws to its close, one of the ways that help was provided to those in need came about when those Christians made the following set of decisions. Let's read verses 36 and 37. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Joseph was not the only one. This particular individual whose name is given to us as Joseph, he had a tract of land. He, along with others, made the decision to sell that land or perhaps the house that they may have had access to and not to keep the money for themselves but to donate it to the apostles who in turn could use it to fortify, sustain, and establish the early church in its infancy. Joseph, we see thus, was an individual on this occasion that is described in verse 36 in the following way. His given name by his parents was Joseph. But notice the apostles surnamed him Barnabas. And there's the first occurrence of that name that describes this man who we will encounter on many occasions in the remainder of the book of Acts. But notice why they gave him that name which is being interpreted the son of consolation. The apostles recognized in this man named Joseph a very tender and giving heart who had a desire to encourage, exhort, strengthen, and edify the church. And in that way, they gave him a nickname. They gave him a name indicative of that character of him, the son of consolation. I might make note that other translations, such as the American Standard, such as the Revised Standard, will read that the son of exhortation. Others will read it the son of encouragement. Here was a man especially known for the ability, the willingness to encourage other people. Isn't that a wonderful characteristic and trait, timelessly recorded in the book of Acts in regard to Barnabas? Here was a man known for his encouragement of others. May I ask in that regard, just in passing, what about your name and what about mine? When others hear of your name and mine, do they immediately think about a man or a woman who encourages other people? Who is not one who tears down and is always negative and who in fact tries to hinder and inhibit the work? but who, by the nature of a timely example and by the optimistic attitude and viewpoint toward God's Word, seeks to encourage the work of the Lord and to lift it up and to edify others rather than to tear them down. I suppose all of us, whether it be at the work site or maybe even other places in our families, we know of those who always seem to be pessimistic and those who look on the negative and those who see in everything that which is dark. For them, the glass is always half empty. But there are others who see the glass is half full. They are ready to take what God has given, look upon it with a positive viewpoint that God has blessed them with what they have, and are ready to employ it to the useful service of others. 
It would seem Barnabas fell into that latter category, didn't he? The son of consolation. There are a number of passages that challenge us with the realization that God would expect all of us to fall into that latter category. I've listed a few for your consideration with me. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 11, we notice that as Paul labored amongst the church in Thessalonica, he tenderly exhorted them and encouraged them like a father does his children. Paul thus was interested in not chastising them to the point that they would be rebuked and give up, but rather that they'd be nourished, encouraged, edified just as a loving father would his children. Notice also in that same book in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11, the direct commandment revealed to us, edify one another. That's a direct statement and command, isn't it? Edify one another, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. Maybe we've already remembered that phrase that the Hebrew writer delivered to the congregation. There are those Hebrews that were undergoing such great difficulties. He said, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The powerful realization encompassed within the church of exhorting one another, encouraging one another. That's one of the greatest benefits, isn't it, as far as ourselves in regard to our attendance at the Bible studies and worships. We have the precious privilege, and yea, even the commandment, to exhort each other. Perhaps it goes without saying, that's impossible for me to do if I'm not here. If I'm somewhere else, when I could be here, I'm certainly not in any encouragement to any of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm certainly no exhortation to them. Notice in that text of Hebrews 10.25, they were admonished, one of the things about your failure to attend is that you are not exhorting your brothers and your sisters in Christ. That thought takes us back to Barnabas, doesn't it? Barnabas the encourager. But that wasn't the only way in which Barnabas encouraged others. Let's look further in the book of Acts and see another passage in which he himself is mentioned directly by name and some tremendous works of encouragement are to be found in his example. This one occurs in the ninth chapter of Acts. Again, to set the setting for it, on that occasion, the chapter opens with a man named Saul who was vehemently opposed to the work of Jesus. In fact, he had in his possession letters such that when he arrived in Damascus, he would have the authority to bind and imprison those that were Christians. It is not as though these individuals had broken any civil laws. It's not as though they had affronted the Caesar or in some way brought desolation to the Roman Empire. They had done nothing more than pronounce the name of Jesus on their lips and therefore were members of the Lord's body, Christians. The Jewish individuals, however, in Jerusalem, men who were of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, those that were of the Sanhedrin council, they, however, had rejected the Savior and were not interested in supporting anyone who did. Thus, Paul had besought letters from them and off he went to Damascus to imprison, to arrest, if you please, those that were Christians. But we each remember what happened on that interesting journey. 
As he drew near the city of Damascus, a bright light shone about him, and he carried on a conversation with the Son of God. From that time forward, his life was never the same. In fact, Jesus on that occasion said, Go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Noticing afterward in verse number 6 and following, into the city he went. He fasted for three days and nights. He, in fact, had been struck blind by that bright light on that road to Damascus. And when he came to the city, God had, in fact, instructed Ananias to come to him. And when Ananias came, he, in fact, also instructed Paul in regard to some matters. This man was told, Acts chapter 16, verse 20, or Acts 22, verse 16, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Isn't it interesting then in verse chapter 9, Saul did that. He thus put on his Lord in baptism. But there brings us to about now where Barnabas enters the story. Remember, we left Barnabas back in chapter 4. What has happened in the intermediate time? When we find ourselves in chapter 9, here was now a man, namely Saul, who before, only a few hours before, had been an ardent opposer to Christ. He had in his possession letters to imprison Christians. It is not at all surprising that these Christians in the city of Damascus were somewhat hesitant to trust this man named Saul. A few hours before, he was an opposer to Christ, and now do you expect us to believe he's going to preach the same gospel that he once was ready to destroy? Do you expect us to trust him and invite him into our homes, into our church, and expect that he will be a defender of the truth? Needless to say, the disciples and even the apostles who labored and worked questioned Saul. They weren't quite ready yet to trust him. In verse number 20 it says, And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Here is Saul preaching. He's preaching the nature of Christ and his deity. But that brings us to verses 26 and following. His preaching still did not convince those that were the apostles and those that were the disciples. And you and I perhaps ourselves could imagine the thoughts that would run through our mind. This man, not long before, was willing to destroy Christians, to call them into question, and now he's preaching Christ. Notice what Barnabas did in verse number 27. But Barnabas took him, that is, took Saul, and brought him to the apostles, and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. Just as surely as Saul had been that vehement opposer to the Lord, here was a man, namely Barnabas, who played an instrumental role in aiding the apostles to come to trust in Saul and to have a degree of consideration and confidence that he was, in fact, a devoted servant of God. May I submit, that's a rather impressive work on Barnabas's part. It indicates a couple of things that I've tried to list for your consideration. First, he had to be aware of Saul's own conversion. By some means, he had become knowledgeable of it. He trusted in Saul's conversion. He accepted what Saul had affirmed. And he not only took that thought to himself, he aided others to be confident in it as well. 
when you and I stop for a moment and think about what a great servant to the Lord this man named Saul became, namely the Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, who established congregations all over the Roman Empire, who in fact was one who converted untold numbers to become faithful members of the Lord's body. What a great work then Barnabas did by being instrumental in helping the apostles to accept Saul and so that they could give to him the right hand of fellowship and encourage him in his work to be a faithful preacher of the Lord. That was no small task that Barnabas had done. And it was no small thing in the light of heaven either. I've listed some considerations for you to think about in the application of that to you and me. Here was a man, namely Barnabas, who used his speech, the power of his language, to help bring Saul into favorable consideration to those apostles. How do you and I use our speech? How do we employ our language? Is it to build someone up and to aid them in their journey with Christ? Or is it far too quick to give in to gossip and to use our tongue in ways that tears down the church, the people in it, and everybody else? The choice is left to us, isn't it? When we hear gossip, are we quick to accept it? Or are we quick to defend the character of those whom we may well know to be different than what is so slanderously spoken about them? The question again does remain a good one, doesn't it? Your speech and mine can do great things for good, but can it not also do great things for evil? It's no wonder in James chapter 3, much of that whole chapter is devoted to the power of the tongue. The tongue is a world of iniquity, the writer James said. He said, in fact, that it's like if compared to the bits we put in a horse's mouth. And it's like the rudder that's able to control a gigantic ship so that as the steersman drives it wherever he will, the helm together with that rudder is used to do that very thing. How do you and I use our tongue? In verse 10 of that same chapter, James chapter 3, we're reminded that a spring or a fountain does not bring forth both sweet water and bitter. We each know that when we go to a sulfur spring, sulfur water is what we get. It doesn't bring forth sulfur water for 10 minutes and then nice, refreshing, good water for the next 10 minutes. Might we remember our tongues ought not be that way either. The way we speak on Sunday ought to be the way we speak on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and, yea, the other days of the week. When we gather with our friends on Monday, is our language a world apart from the way we spoke in Bible class on Sunday morning? If our friends can't tell that we're Christians by the language we speak and those that are interested in the Bible, there's a problem. And there's a serious problem. For Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37 still reminds us that by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. The words that we speak, you see, are being observed by the God of heaven. Notes are being taken. And we shall stand before God in judgment, giving an account of those things that we have uttered and the ways that we have chosen to use our language. I've listed some verses at the bottom of that screen that perhaps challenge us even further in that regard. One of them, no doubt, would be Ecclesiastes 3, verse 7. In a number of ways there, the writer says there's a time for certain things. The one of interest to us is there's a time to speak and there's a time to be silent. 
Just because we hear something doesn't mean we need to retell it. It may not be worth retelling. It may not have any interest of good within it for those of whom it is spoken and for the character of the church as a whole. It may well be better off dying with us, having never again to be repeated. When gossip or other things like that come our way, perhaps we should think very earnestly and seriously about whether or not there's truth in it. If there isn't, there is no point in repeating it. It doesn't accomplish anything. It does no good for not only the character and traits of those of whom it's spoken, but the urgency of the matter for edifying. Remember, Barnabas was the encourager. That kind of thing doesn't encourage, does it? But in addition, what else could be said about Barnabas? He appears again in this book. In the book of Acts, let us also look a little bit forward. This time to chapter 11. Two chapters forward, and yet again Barnabas appears very brightly on the biblical stage. Perhaps again a brief note of history. Beginning in verse 19 of Acts chapter 11, we learn that the disciples, after the persecution that had surrounded the death of Stephen, they carried the gospel to many places and preached boldly, and many became converts to the cause of Jesus. In particular, in verses 20 and 21, we read, Some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Perhaps in passing, we might note the great success that was beginning to be felt in Antioch. Here was a place now several, several miles from Jerusalem, but as the gospel came to be preached there, verse 21 reminds us, tremendous success was began to be enjoyed. Notice what happened as that success took place. The church in Jerusalem heard about the success that was taking place in Antioch and being interested to encourage that work and to in fact push it forward, they sent someone to Antioch to be a part of the work there. I wonder who they sent. Let's notice verse number 22 and following. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. When the church in Jerusalem was interested to send a person, someone who could encourage the work, someone who would lift up the hands of those new converts in Antioch, someone who would firmly ground them in the truth and would aid them to be better stewards of the blessings of God, no better person could they find to sin than the man named Barnabas. Barnabas the encourager. When he was asked to go, notice verse number 23 and 24 says he went. He wasn't at all, it seems, hesitant about going to Antioch and to being a part of this newfound work in that place and to encourage them to greater and more powerful works for the Lord. Barnabas the encourager. Isn't it interesting that when he came in verse number 23, this special work was said of him. It says, when he came and had seen the grace of God, here was a man of a spiritual mindset. He was able to see the work of God in this area. He was able to perceive the handiwork and the providence of God amongst these people. And it says he was glad. 
And in addition to that, he exhorted them all. That word exhort means to encourage, to edify, to strengthen, to lift up. Here was a man who didn't come into town and start tearing the work down. He didn't cause strife. He didn't cause division. He didn't, in fact, bring all the attention to himself. He exhorted them all. That, note verse 23, with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. That seems, it would at least seem to me, to be a very dramatic statement about the character of Barnabas. Those apostles who were the overseers of the church in Jerusalem, they found a man whom they had great confidence in, and they dispatched him to Antioch. And in his encouragement of that church, could, uh, could we pause a moment and ask, what did the church in Antioch soon come to be known for? Was it a church that died in a few years because of apathy and indifference? Or is it a church who shines as brightly as any other through the rest of the book of Acts as the church more known for evangelism than any other church in all of first century history? It's the latter, isn't it? In fact, what was the congregation who sponsored Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey? It was the church in Antioch. What was the church that sponsored Silas and Paul as they went on the second missionary journey? It was the church at Antioch. What was the church that sponsored Paul and Barnabas on the third missionary journey? As Timothy also joined them, it still was the church in Antioch. This church was responsible as much as any other by the grace of God for emblazoning the gospel over all the Roman Empire. No doubt Barnabas had a role to play in that as he exhorted and encouraged them as early as Acts the 11th chapter. We could perhaps ask ourselves of that same question today. Where do you and I fit into that? Here was Barnabas who was more than excited, it would seem, to use his talents to encourage the work of the Lord even in a distant place. Do you and I feel that same degree of excitement? To think about the encouragement or the edification of the work of the Lord wherever it may be? This last Wednesday evening, I understand that Brother Jack Honeycutt shared with the congregation some of the aspects of the work in India. We should feel a great blessing that God has allowed us to participate in sponsoring truthful work of the Lord wherever it may be, be it at Putnam County here locally, Jackson County locally, or halfway around the world in that province in India. Those kinds of ideas would allow us to at least in part be like a Barnabas to encourage the work no matter where that work may in fact take place. I've listed some other passages for your consideration there that challenge all of us to ask the question, are we ready to respond if we are called? If the elders tap me or you on the shoulder and have a good work in mind and desire that you and I participate, are we ready to, in fact, say, absolutely, I'll do what I can? Or are we too quick to say, I don't have the time. I, I hope you get someone else. Please get someone else to take my part. We should be thankful Barnabas wasn't like that. We should be appreciative of the fact that he was ready to do what he could to spur onward the work of the Lord because he was an encourager, not one ready to sit back and allow others to take that work and to do what God would rather he do. Some passages that challenge us. What about 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 6, but especially verse 9? When Paul wrote to that congregation in Corinth, 
And he addressed them especially about the work taking place in Corinth. He chastised them in part because they weren't mature enough to take up the mantle of work and to do what they, by that point, should have been ready, willing, and able to do. He thus de described himself and Apollos in language that, in fact, though it was God who gave the increase, Paul said he planted and Apollos watered. Notice these two workers for the Lord, too, were described as being God's fellow workers, God's husbandry, and notice that Paul, by inspiration, applies that to all of us. All of us are fellow laborers with God in the kingdom of the Lord. That might lead us to ask, then, am I doing anything? Am I doing my part to bring forth fruit in God's vineyard? If not, does the problem rest with God? Or does it rest with me? Maybe the hoe is ready to be used and I just haven't picked it up. I haven't applied myself to the employment of the work that God has in store for you and for me to do. Barnabas, it was seen, was not like that. He was an encourager, ready to use what he could to accomplish what God would have him to do. As if that was perhaps powerful enough as it was. Barnabas also appears yet another time as it regards to the book of Acts. Let's look at the last occurrence of him in this book. One of them takes us back, interestingly, to Acts 9.27, which we discussed a bit briefly earlier. The instrumental role that he played in bringing the apostles to recognize the confidence that they could have in Saul. But that perhaps is better expressed more carefully in the words of chapter 13. I listed this somewhat expansively as chapters 13 through 15, but we will look especially at chapter 13. In Acts 13, I would ask you read with me verses 1 through 3. And notice some of the things here said about the man named Barnabas. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. By this time, a little bit of time had elapsed since our study in chapter 8 and chapter 9. But as we can see, the text opens with the affirmation that there were prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch. Among those that are listed by name was Barnabas. In fact, his name heads the list. Here was a man who was both a prophet and a teacher. He had devoted his talents and the usage of them for the betterment of that church, for the encouragement of, of God's work. And isn't it interesting, verse 2 says, they ministered to the Lord. We don't know what the other occupations of Barnabas may have been. We know that Saul was a tent maker, Acts 18.3. We know that some of the other apostles, like Peter, had been a fisherman. We don't know what Barnabas had been. We do know, though, despite that other occupation, he did minister to the Lord. And we do know in verse number 2 that the Holy Spirit had a special work for Barnabas and for Saul. 
So much so that he said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. God had something very special in mind for Paul and for Barnabas. As you see in verse number 3, they fasted and prayed, and then they laid their hands on them, and they sent them away. These two didn't shirk the responsibility. We, you and I know that that work was this. It was what we call the first missionary journey, the first evangelistic tour, where they would carry the gospel not only to the island of Cyprus, but to the mainland and establish congregations in places like Derby, Lystra, Pamphylia, and Perga. All of that will be described in the next two chapters of this book. Barnabas the Encourager. We have seen a number of things about this man. The interesting facets and aspects of his life in every place he's mentioned, he was one who encouraged the work of the Lord. Not once is it said anything that he detracted from it or shirked any responsibilities considering it. He was always one who exhorted that work and encouraged it. To the point that I think it fair to say we can conclude the lesson with some phrases much like this. Rehearse with me just a few of the things we've seen about Barnabas. First, he was instrumental in introducing Saul to the apostles. Given again what Saul would become as the great defender of the faith and the writer of again half the New Testament basically by number of books. What a great instrumental work Barnabas played in pushing forward the boundaries of Christianity over the last 20 centuries. Not only that, it was Barnabas who was sent by the, church in Antio or by the church in Antioch to carry relief to poor saints. That again we saw in chapter 9. And it also true, we learned that it was he who was instrumental in evangelism with Paul on the first missionary journey. Perhaps finally, the very name that the apostles gave him, the surname meant the son of encouragement, the son of consolation willing to sell a parcel of land and turn that money over to the apostles so that they could use it to the encouragement and the extension of the boundaries of the church. Tonight, to say all of that asks about you and me. What about your name and what about mine? Are you and I known in ways, at least in part, comparable to Barnabas? Do you and I encourage or do we discourage? Do we exhort or do we do the opposite of exhortation? The question and the answer rests with each one of us tonight. Only you can answer it most expressly for yourself. But if others have hinted to you that you might be more encouraging, or if you have sensed it in yourself that others would desire that you be a more optimistic influence and less pessimistic, that you have talents that God would wish you to use that you have not used, maybe you should think very seriously about the words that some good friend has shared with you. Maybe there's something that God, just like he had for Saul and for Barnabas, a work that he has especially for you to do. If so, be like Barnabas. Take up the mantle of leadership and work fervently to its accomplishment, and you too will be an encourager just like he was. This evening, in the conclusion of this lesson, might we ask, if you're not a Christian, there is obviously one initial step you need to take so that you can become a member of the kingdom and start working in behalf of the Savior. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. You need, as He Himself said in Luke 13, 5, to repent of your sins, otherwise you will perish. 
You need to confess the name of Jesus as the Savior, the Son of God, and then happily and gladly be immersed, buried in water, in the act of baptism. And in that way, in contacting Christ's blood, that blood will cleanse you from sin. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Upon so doing, live faithfully until death, and a crown of life God promises to you. 2 Timothy 4, 8, Revelation 2, 10. If either of those things tonight would be the need of your life, that is, to become a Christian or to be rededicated, we would be more than happy to assist you, to encourage you tonight in any way possible and in your act of obedience. But we need you to let us know that. And we would urge you to do that while together we stand and while we sing.